Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for January 3rd, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including uh, the official announcement of a bright sequel. We'll be taking a look at the state of the movie box office, including 2017 movie ticket sales, female-led films, and the Cloverfield sequel gets pushed back yet again. And in our feature presentation, Huay Tran Bui will talk about her top 10 movies of 2017. Has it cha- Has the landscape changed since we, we talked to her mid, uh, mid-year? Uh, we will find out. Uh, this is Peter Schroeder, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film writer, Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. So, HT, we haven't talked to you since uh, you got back from the new year. Uh, what, did, what did you do over New Year's Eve? Uh, so I went to a a party at my college friend's house where she had bought a saber to open champagne bottles. Uh, so this is apparently the way that you're supposed to open champagne bottles by just slicing off the top. Um, and, you know, alcohol and sharp objects are always a really great combination. But luckily, only two people got injured at this party. Wait, so by, by a saber, you mean like a like a sword? It was... It's both. It's kind of a sword, but it's more like a machete. It's kind of like the size of a machete, but it's it's like a sort of serrated on one side and then like um, just sharp on the other. And you're supposed to kind of get on the seam of the champagne bottle and just lop off the, the top. I feel scared enough trying to, you know, get that cork out. Uh, but you know, in, in the 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 way that I think most people do it, I I, I think I'd be so afraid to be you know hucking a huge <laughs> metal object at that. Ben, have you ever done that? No, I've never done that. I've seen it done before, and I know it's a thing, but I've never actually had the pleasure of doing it myself. Ht, <laughs> did you wield the saber? I touched it, but I did not wield it. I'm very scared of sharp objects. And just like having a knife pointed at me will get, send me into like a panic. So it was a it was an interesting party, especially because towards the end, as everyone got a little bit more drunk, um, the sabers are being used 
to sort of baseball bat uh, some decorative squashes that were at her house. So, <laughs> and there weren't any there weren't any injuries aside from like the two people who who got sort of cut on a champagne glass. But Ooh. other than that, like it was all safe. It was all in good fun. Uh, no one no one's beautiful dresses were ruined by blood. And <laughs> yeah, I had a good I had a good New Year's. Do, do you think in the Star Wars galaxy? Uh, do they open celebratory alcohol with a lightsaber? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, I, 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 uh, last night I went to the Magic Castle. I just want to mention this briefly. I know people are probably sick of hearing about the Magic Castle on this movie podcast, but uh, it was the, the 55th anniversary of them, them opening the Magic Castle. So they had a big uh, Founders Day celebration, and it was uh, a fun night. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne was there in like, some kind of like – uh, kimono kind of dress <laughs> um and uh it was fun watching magic with Lawrence Fishburne and uh and I got to meet uh um the amazing Jonathan who is a, magi- a comedy magician that I kind of grew up watching on Comedy Central and uh I think 4 years ago he was diagnosed with a life-threatening condition and told that he was only going to live one more year um, so I never expected to see him again. He's, you know, obviously far surpassed that. And it was a, a great to uh, chat with him briefly. And um, he, he's still performing, uh, shockingly. But anyways, uh, he wasn't performing last night, uh, but it was a fun night. Uh, but let's get into the news for what, what people want to hear about. They want to hear about the movie news. And uh, let, let's start out with uh, Bright is getting a sequel. We, we talked about this the other day, but it wasn't official. Now Netflix has officially announced this. HT, what do we know? So Netflix has officially confirmed that Bright will be coming back for a sequel, a second film that would be helmed by David Ayer as well as written by him. So Max Landis, who wrote the original script that sold that was sold to Netflix for around three to four million dollars initially, will not be returning for the sequel. So we'll have David Ayer returning to write and direct, uh, and Will Smith and Joel Edgerton returning to star in their roles as the uh, detectives, human detective and the orc detective partners. Uh, We don't know anything else other than that, uh, when the movie will be coming out, but it's been announced that this is, this is Netflix's most popular film, uh, essentially one of of their most original, uh, popular original content, um, the highest viewed Netflix film ever on the service in its first week of release and uh, one of the big, biggest originals that it has ever launched. And uh, not only that, but each of the 190-plus countries in which Netflix is available, right, is reportedly the number one movie. Uh, so, and, and more people have viewed it internationally than they have domestically. Hmm. And uh, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is quite high while the critic score is quite low. I have not seen this film. Have either of you watched it yet? I know Ben said he has not watched it. No, I haven't. I haven't watched it because I didn't want to contribute to the Netflix algorithm, which obviously <laughs> aided in the sort of uh, green lighting of the sequel uh, because so many people watched it. Uh, it was considered a huge success despite a lot of the critical um, bashing that it got from movie critics who some called it the worst movie of the year. <laughs> yeah. Um, that makes me almost want to watch it. Uh, I, it is interesting that Max Landis isn't being brought back. I wonder if this has to do with, uh, you know, I, I think Landis has developed a reputation of, uh, 
uh, of sorts of, uh, you know, studios seem to want to go their own direction with the scripts and he kind of gets dropped off do you know what I mean like uh, the collaboration ends at some point <laughs> trying to think of the the nicest way of, of saying this or if uh recently there's been some accusations uh of sexual assault accusations nobody has come forward but there's you know been murmurs on twitter and landis has been uh suspiciously quiet uh and he's usually you know very vocal on twitter so i'm wondering if uh netflix a company that you know had the problems with kevin spacey is uh, preemptively cutting ties with uh, Landis. I, we don't know. You know, you, you know, nobody has come forward, so, you know, <laughs> who knows? Uh, but uh, it is interesting that Landis isn't involved. I, I know he once tweeted that he thought Bright was going to be his Star Wars, which is a ludicrous thing. Which he deleted, thing, too. Yeah, it's a ludicrous... I, I think he even realized how ludicrous of a thing that was to say. But I don't know. But, you know, more people are watching Bright uh at home than star wars in theater right now so i don't know <laughs> that's sad it's sad <laughs> um but let's move on let's talk about 2017's movie ticket sales which uh you know judging by the box office you're like thinking like oh my god last jedi is making so much at the box office you know movie theaters must be doing well but apparently it's the lowest in 25 years ben what do we know yeah, the movie ticket sales in 2017 were the lowest they've been since 1992. So, yes, theaters sold fewer tickets last year than in the past 25 years. That's um, not great. Uh, Box Office Mojo reports that 1.23 billion movie tickets were sold between January 1st and December 31st last year, uh, which is down from 1.3 billion that were sold in 2016. Uh, I did the math really quickly, and the average number of tickets sold over the past 25 years is 1.4 billion. So it's down, you know, considerably from that. Um, but again, because this is an average, uh, you know, it's not super surprising to me that the number of tickets uh, sold has decreased as the vast array of entertainment options consumers have has increased over the past. 10 or 15 or 25 years. So, um, you know, it it all makes sense from a numbers perspective. It's got to be disheartening for uh, movie theaters and exhibitors and stuff to, you know, sort of face the hard truth behind these numbers. Um, But uh, but yeah, that's what we're looking at right now. Yeah, I, I mean, ticket sales have been on a decline for quite some time. Uh, I think if you look at, uh, you know, box office mojo and you look at even, you know, obviously ticket prices have gone up uh, over the years, 1910, you know, the ticket price was seven cents and now it's, you know, average 893. Not that I see anywhere in Los Angeles that I can pay 893 to see a movie. <laughs> but um, uh, if you look at like Gone with the Wind, which inflated, uh, adjusted for inflation is the highest uh, uh, seen movie of all time. You know, that when it came out in 1939 made one hundred ninety eight million dollars, which is like nothing today. You know, that's a Star Wars opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do the math, that's something like almost nine hundred million people saw that movie in theaters, which, you know, insane. yeah, Star Wars, what, like a couple dozen million? <laughs> I don't know. Uh it's 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 you know I think at the end of the run it's probably gonna be like a couple hundred maybe, <laughs> you know yeah. it, it's it's a, it's big change. I, obviously, there's more options. People wait for uh, home viewing. Uh, also, in the news is that um, while the box office is down, 
what is leading the box office is women. HD, what do we know? Yeah, speaking of historic box office uh, sort of feats, the three top performing movies of 2017, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Beauty and the Beast, and Wonder Woman, were all headlined by female leads, making it the first time this has happened in cinematic history since 1958. Uh, So that was when um, the movies uh, South Pacific, which starred Mitzi Gaynor, uh, Auntie Mame, which starred Rosalind Russell, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which starred Elizabeth Taylor, all ruled the box office for the top three movies of the year. So this is a big sort of leap for women, especially regarding uh, sort of the pay gap and everything like that that we've seen uh, in in Hollywood, but also elsewhere. And it's a very exciting sort of um, f- for it's an exciting accomplishment for uh, female-led and female-helmed films as well, because Wonder Woman was directed by Patty Jenkins. So, yeah, this is very exciting. This is a, a big feat. Um, yes. Sorry. <laughs> when, when historians look back at this time in this change, do you think – where where do you think this change first happened? Is it in, like, the YA, like, Twilight and Hunger Games? Is that, like – the pivotal move towards, uh, you know, female-led films doing, like, really well at the box office? Yeah, we've started to see a shift more recently with, I think, The Hunger Games and with also sort of mid-budget comedies like Bridesmaids, where everyone always acts really surprised that women do well at the box office. Uh, but we see that we saw that this year as well with Girls Trip. And uh, Hunger Games, I think, was that sort of significant shift because Jennifer Lawrence was headlining this huge action blockbuster that was sort of made to have a female lead and could not have worked otherwise. So it's really exciting that these films are not only not only do they have female leads who are sometimes part of an ensemble, but they are centered around these female leads. They are not just, you know, sort of like the last year, uh, Scarlett Johansson was the highest grossing actress of the year, but because she was part of Captain America Civil War, part of a large ensemble. But here, uh, Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman, she is the third highest grossing actress of uh, actor of the year total uh, because of Wonder Woman, which is a movie that was centered around her and her character. Ah. Um, and let's move on to our last bit of news, and that is the untitled Cloverfield sequel that was titled uh, God Particle uh, has been pushed back yet again. Is this the fourth time that's been pushed back, Ben? Uh, I think that's true. So let's let's run through it real quickly. So after 10 Cloverfield Lane came out, which was sort of a, a semi sequel that like was kind of set in the same universe and kind of not to the original Cloverfield, which came out in uh, 2008. Um, 10 Cloverfield Lane came out, I think it was 2016, beginning of 2016, and uh, God Particle was supposed to come out in February of 2017, and then that ended up getting pushed back to October of 2017, and then to February of 2018, uh, after some reshoots, which were supervised by producer J.J. Abrams, but February 2nd, 2018 is less than a month from now. And we were like, why haven't we seen any trailers for this? What's going on here? So we reached out to Paramount yesterday and found out that the now untitled Cloverfield movie, again, God Particle is not its real name at this point anymore. We don't know what the real title of it is. But we now know that the movie is going to be opening on April 20th, 2018. So about four months from now. Um, 
the decision was made very, very recently because as far as we know, on December 19th, um, the movie was still supposed to be opening on February 2nd. So I think this happened maybe like over the holiday break, uh, Paramount decided, hey, let's kick this thing back a little bit. And it's weird when, when you know, people are complaining that we haven't seen a Han Solo, you know, image or trailer or anything. And that's out in, you know, what, five months or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this movie was literally on track to come out a month from when, you know, Paramount was still saying that that was the date. And we have not seen anything from it. J.J. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abrams, I think, supervised, uh, handed on, supervised some reshoots. There is some rumors behind the scenes that uh, the movie is kind of a mess but um i don't know it's it's weird because at this point pushing a film back four times i don't know it, it, i i can't think of a time that that has happened uh in 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 the recent past uh it just seems like that that's at this point why not just you know dump it on vod if it's if yeah it's, and i i think the only thing recently that i can think of is like amityville the awakening i think is what what it was called we were talking about that oh, like yeah. a month month or two ago on the podcast that one got bumped and it, it, i think eventually they did just release it for free on like google play or something like that so hopefully uh, whatever this untitled cloverfield movie uh is it's not bad enough to to just get unceremoniously unceremoniously dumped like that but um but yeah i, I mean it's got a great cast David Oyelowo, uh, John Ortiz, Chris O'Dowd, Gugu Mbatha-Ra is supposed to be in it, um, Zhang Ziyi. So I'm excited about the idea of all those people getting together for a movie that's sort of quasi set in this universe. But uh, again, we still don't really know any hard details about what the movie actually is. So we'll have to wait and see what they do. And we're going to take this moment to thank you, Ben. Uh, We're going to leave you here uh, before we get into our feature presentation. Where can people find more of your work? You can find me on SlashFilm.com, and you can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. And now for our feature presentation, Y Tran Bowie is going to tell us about her top 10 movies of 2017. Let's get into it with uh, number 10, The Post. Yeah, so my 10th choice is The Post, and it was kind of a reaction to uh, this old Spielberg that I knew and loved when I was growing up and I miss sorely. And I felt like I saw the return of that director who was behind masterpieces like E.T. or the Jurassic Park with The Post. It's stirring, it's suspenseful, it's just the right amount of sentimental, and it can be a little bit on the nose, but I think it's the amount of the on the nose that we need in sort of these trying times because um, it's definitely a film that's very timely. And I really like that it's such a dynamic film. It's something that Steven Spielberg Spielberg directs like an action film almost. And uh, all the character actors and actors who are in the film are great. It's sort of like seeing a master director and a master class of actors um, sort of have this elegant dance, especially with Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, and character actors like Bob Odenkirk, Matthew Reese, and Carrie Coon, who are all just fabulous and excellent in this film. I almost wish that Meryl Streep was giving given the you know like the the lead role in this. It feels like kind of heavy on Tom Hanks when I feel like the big decisions in this movie are hers. And I, I know this film is largely hers, but uh, but I, if I have one complaint, I think that's my one complaint about that movie. And I I, I definitely like this film. 
Yeah, I could see that too, because she and Tom Hanks kind of share sort of equal screen time. But in the end, Tom Hanks is sort of Spielberg's favorite and he kind of gets a little bit more of the narrative juice. But I do like seeing uh, Kay Graham sort of uh, arc from being this uncertain woman who's in charge for the first time and has been told all her life that she really can't step up, finally have that moment of like that eureka moment where she makes a huge decision to publish the Pentagon Papers and um, step up. And it's a really uh, inspiring moment for me. And uh, before you email us about spoilers, this is this is real life history, guys. <laughs> if, you, if you don't know that <laughs> happened, then uh, I don't know. You should just go read history books for a while. Um, but OK, n- moving on to your number nine, and that is Okja. I have not seen this yet. Really? It's on Netflix, Peter. I know. I, I, it's just for some reason or other, I have not gotten to it. So Okja was on my list um, at the midway point of the year. Uh, it's a little bit lower now, but I still like it just as much just because I feel like Bong Joon-ho kind of is completely unpretentious when he approaches his vision for this film. It's just weird. It's wild. It's a madcap adventure that combines this uh, tender girl and her pig uh, adventure story with a somewhat clunky um, narrative about capitalist capitalist greed and conservation and cultural miscommunication. But um, Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal are great and over the top in it. I really enjoy their performances, though people don't really like how ridiculous and hammy they get. I think it really works in the context of this movie and the fact that they're kind of doing a more Korean style uh, of acting, which goes in line with sort of like this cultural clash that we see in Okja. And number eight on your list is Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is a really special movie to me. I would put it higher if it weren't for that terrible third act. But I just, (laughs) (laughs) I have a a huge emotional uh, connection with Wonder Woman because it was a movie that really shifted my perspective of what a blockbuster movie can be. I feel like sort of my tepid response to other really great blockbusters that I've seen this year have been sort of in response to how great Wonder Woman was and how I was able to see all these uh, complex, fierce female characters on the big screen for the first time depicted in a way that wasn't um, uh, gaudy or sort of sensual or overly sensual in a way that male gaze often is. Um, And it felt very empowering. And I felt like that was an experience that cannot be weighed against the that could weigh against the sort of the problems with the plot and the and the narrative and everything but i really love wonder woman i think it's it's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year and it would be higher if it weren't for the the poor cgi of the third act (laughs) and and the poor plotting i think but um i I will defend the plotting (laughs) i will defend the plotting i think it's a fine good plot that you know we've is made fresh because of the content and though we've seen it before there's no there's nothing bad about something being familiar or derivative as long as something new is done with it. And I've seen a lot of men, uh, not just in critics, but fans kind of write this film off. And uh, it's a shame because yes, it it does have that third act, which I I, I do agree is a problem. Um, But I think, uh, and uh, saying this as a man (laughs) probably doesn't hold any weight, (laughs) but like um, that, like, you know, we've seen, all these male superheroes on the big screen before. And I can't imagine what it would be like 
to be a woman and not have that and finally get this. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's um, something I never knew I was craving before, but when I finally saw it, I was like, "Wow!" So this is what it feels like. Yeah, and uh, number seven on your list, Ladybird. Yes, number seven is Ladybird, which is just a phenomenal coming of age film, as well as this really sort of devastating uh, portrait of this tense relationship between a mother and daughter. And it's something that I went to see with my mother, which gave it another added layer. And it felt very much like a fresh and familiar film to me, just because it was set in a sort of arbitrary year, 2003, which was the year that me and many other women who were seeing it sort of grew up. And I felt like that intensely personal take that Greta Gerwig brings to it really elevates the film and makes it more than just a typical indie slight uh, coming of age film. Uh, Saoirse Ronan's amazing in it as it's Laurie Metcalf and it has this really warm heart to it that I think sort of cuts through its self-effacing irony that comes with the genre. This is also one of my favorite movies of the year. And, uh, you know, if you have not seen this film, I would, you know, head out to theaters while it's still on the big screen and check it out. Uh, It is kind of scary that they're already doing period films in the early 2000s. (laughs) It makes me feel super old. Um, But, yeah. uh, And also, uh, looking at your list here, it is kind of um, uh, worth mentioning how many of these movies have uh, female leads in them. I'm not sure if that's something that you have uh, self-processed. That wasn't intentional, but it was just something that sort of came about because I connected personally with these movies. And um, I think that with, you know, everyone's top favorite movies, it should be movies that they connect personally with or at least that really speak to them. And for me, it's like, this isn't the best movies of all time list or the best, like, uh, quantifiable movies of this year but it's just movies to me that mattered the most and uh resonated the most and one one of the films that was on your your uh half of the year list was uh get out and that is makes your end of the year list at number six yes get out is a great film it's both a crowd pleaser and a genuinely great horror film and i really love that we're seeing more social commentary uh, come through these uh, genre films, especially this one that does such a sharp, sharp commentary on systemic race and privilege and turns sort of like the little microaggressions that we see with uh, mixed race people and couples every day uh, turn into tangible plot points. And um, it, it comes off as both a comedy and a horror film. And I really like that mashing, that mishmashing of genres. And I know I've said this before, I love the social commentary in this film, but I don't feel like as a horror film or as a comedy film, it's exceptional. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but I, I love what it does with its social commentary. Uh, let's move on to your number five, and that is Dunkirk. Yes. So I called in my list Dunkirk um, pure cinema. And I'm going to explain why. I think that Dunkirk really makes use of what movies and film films, same thing, uh, can are, are have the potential to do. 
they re- it really tests the limits of what the movie going experience can be. It's almost like a 4D film because, like Chris Nolan said before, it's supposed to be an experience rather than a traditional story, which was something I kind of scoffed at when I first heard. <laughs> but it truly is a really visceral experience that really that feels like being dropped into the middle of World War II, and it's through the auditory sensory. Um, combination of things like when you see it in IMAX you feel like your teeth are going to like rattle out of your head and you feel like your your drums are going to explode but it's something that I think really makes full use of what storytelling can be in cinema and it's something that can only be like like Chris Nolan said it's best seen in theaters I hate being that sort of pretentious person who's like you have to watch this on the big screen IMAX but it's a it's just such a great um use of technology in cinema because um, it's such a bare-bones story and Christopher Nolan's most emotional movie, I would say. You know, this is a film that I don't love, but I agree that it is a film that I think has to be seen on an IMAX big screen, which uh, saying that now probably is like saying fuck you to everybody listening to this that have that didn't see it because they're never going to get that chance of seeing it in IMAX screen at this point um but uh I don't know I I, I think I, I like this movie a lot but what really bothers me is the structure of the film which is so Chris Nolan doing those three different stories and three different kind of uh uh time wanks or yeah. settings uh kind of is like an fu to storytelling it, it kind of uh is jarring it, it basically it doesn't for me put me into that the stories of these people it actually takes me out of like i'm trying to figure out what is going on when do you mm-hmm. know what i mean like it, it's more confusing than uh yeah yeah so that, that that's my I, complaint i could see that i think the timelines for the most part were largely unnecessary in Dunkirk because I think it does sort of go against his central thesis of trying to tell the stories on the ground um, of these soldiers and just kind of these snapshots of these people at certain moments in time. Um, It works, I guess, I think it works sort of structurally in terms of like the building of the the climax and the building of suspense. But I do think it kind of takes away from the the bare bones of it all. So I I kind of hand wave it off. It works for me. Um, and I think I kind of make sense for how he structured the film. But it's not part an essential part of the film, I think. And let's talk about your number four film. And that is Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Ah, I love The Shape of Water. And I, I know people are going to be, well, people who follow me on Twitter at least may be surprised that it's not my number one pick. But it is a really gorgeous uh, fairy tale romance that takes the sort of B-movie creature feature and expands it into this uh, weird and whimsical Cold War setting. And I feel like it's the perfect sort of distillation of what Guillermo del Toro does best. He has kind of been knocked before for always having these really ardent um, homages and love letters to genre. Crimson Peak, I think he was kind of um, criticized for it being such a an homage genre that there was no story in it. But I think Shape of Water is the real culmination of all of those sort of criticisms that he's had and his strengths as a director in that he can pull off all of these sort of love letters to classic cinema, to B-movie creature features, um, to sort of like 
his idea of the American dream, as well as like this overarching narrative of the fairy tale romance. And he brings it all together in a really beautiful and lush film. Um, and I, I absolutely adore um, Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water. She gives a phenomenal performance as a mute lab worker, and she definitely anchors the film no pun intended, <laughs> as despite having nothing, not being able to say anything just because she's so expressive and her eyes have such a great, she has such great eyes. She can just really emote so well. And um, Doug Jones is also great as the amphibian man, Richard Jenkins, Michael Stolberg is just, and Michael Shannon, of course, they're all such a great cast. I know people have criticized it for being somewhat broad and um, a little bit cold, uh, kind of expecting the audience to the, the heavy work in um, believing or projecting the romance between Eliza and the amphibian man. But I completely believe it. And I think that it's something that works so well, especially as um, sort of allegory for the oppressed minorities and the outsider uh, story as well. Um, yeah, I, I think this film is beautiful. And uh, it's I don't think it's going to make my top 10, but just, just slightly, just like by like one or two, uh, you know, off the, the, the top 10. But, uh, I, I think the story doesn't in, envelop me as much as, uh, maybe Pan's Labyrinth or his other films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just such a beautiful, uh, movie and it's amazing that it was accomplished for under $20 million. I, I, I just can't like, you know, seeing every frame of that movie looks like, you know, so much art. art. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really curious as to what your top 10 will be because I'm, Jacob was mentioning this earlier, but all of our favorite movies are completely different and there's barely any overlap. So this is going to be a really interesting year for our separate top 10s. For sure. And uh, number three on your list is Your Name. Uh, this is a film that uh, didn't this come out uh, last year or am I misremembering? <laughs> came out in Japan in 2016. Okay, so... But was released in the U.S. in 2017. April 2017, if I am correct. Yes. Okay. So Your Name was uh, at the top of my list at the midway point, and it's definitely still up there. It's this. It's a beautiful, cerebral um, slice-of-life slash coming-of-age film that kind of begins as your standard body body swap comedy, but then unfolds into this trippy and metaphysical meditation on fate and time. It's very beautiful, stunningly animated. Uh, I've talked about this uh, movie plenty of times on the podcast before, but Makoto Shinkai is one of my favorite um, anime directors now, and I think that he makes full use of animation as a medium uh, to, through which we can test the limits of how it can tell stories. I was speaking before about how Dunkirk really tested the limits of cinema, and I think Your Name does so in a, in a different way, but in a way that really um, breaks the boundaries of like filmmaking because it's it does a lot of things that live-action filming filmmaking can't do, and I think that that's what the strength of animation is. And I really appreciate when your name or like animated movies strive to tell really ambitious stories, um, but still keep it rooted in like this really familiar story about first love, first heartbreak, um, this sort of melancholy of missing someone that you never really knew, and um, brings it onto like another higher abstract level. 
I was really expecting this to be your number one of this year. Uh, <laughs> number two on your list is another movie that I, I guess to be on your top five, you got to have your name in, in the I title. Uh, it's Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, I wondered if people would get confused because I had your name and Call Me By Your Name immediately after the other, but I absolutely loved Call Me By Your Name. It feels like sort of, I kind of said this in my in my um, in my article, it, feels, it sounds a little pretentious when I read it out loud, but it feels like waking from a beautiful dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's this hazy, feverish, sort of sumptuous film that is filled with this sort of inexplicable emotion um it's helped by the fact that luca guadagnino i don't know how to pronounce his name the i'm director. not even gonna try <laughs> <laughs> he has this sort of cold approach to the entire movie despite it being set on this warm italian countryside he um has observes the performances of uh, army hammer and timothy chamelet from a distance as they have this sort of slow burn courtship and um first love um, that kind of happens really slowly. I guess it makes sense when I say slow burn, but <laughs> it <laughs> it's it kind of uh, it goes in line with the whole through line of them studying these Greek Russian um, statues and observing them for their beauty and their artistry. And it kind of becomes this almost beautiful portrait that you see from afar um, and almost feels a little bit too cold in the end until you get to Michael Stilberg's monologue. Shout out to Michael Stilberg for being in three of my top 10 movies, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, he is phenomenal for in Call Me By Your Name. He is honestly the saving grace for this film because his monologue at the end was really this explosive moment that just wrapped the entire movie all together for me. He gives this monologue about appreciating uh, what you had and not and realizing that maybe you will never have it again. Um, this sort of connection that's a once in a lifetime connection. And <laughs> I saw a meme about it recently. That's why I'm laughing. But um, <laughs> it's a really beautiful monologue, and I I really. I was, it brought me to tears, and I kind of am realizing now that I rated a lot of my movies based on how much they made me cry. But I think that <laughs> that monologue and this movie in, in in itself is a really beautiful ode to the beauty of life in both ecstasy and pain. For sure. And I, I think people are probably wondering at this point, what is your number one film of 2017? My number one film is... The Florida Project. The Florida Project is a movie that completely caught me by surprise. I kind of, I went in seeing it not knowing much about it. And I was left completely emotionally wrecked at the end. And it's saying that it sounds like it's sort of a mostly manipulative, sentimental film, but it's far from that. It's kind of a beautiful examination of um, poverty in the periphery of Florida's Walt Disney World and um, it's kind of examining these hidden homeless who live in the motels surrounding the theme park and uh, who live day to day living in these motels that have become sort of like slum-like in their conditions uh, but really make the well, best well, of it. Not, they're not really homeless, right? Or It's it's like the hidden homeless. I actually wrote, yeah. read this really great article about it because they don't have um, you know permanent homes or anything. They have they live in these ah, I guess te technically temporary right. residences yeah right yeah so they are on the verge of homelessness 
um, but it's a really wonderful depiction of poverty. Um, and I think it's it's a profound portrait of poverty, but also of humanity, um, because the film isn't about this really maudlin, impoverished family, but it's told from the perspective of a young girl, uh, Mooney, played by Brooklyn P- Prince, who is amazing in it. Oh, she's great. Uh, She's just amazing. She's um, she has this really whimsical, lighthearted approach to life, and she seems blissfully unaware of the conditions that she lives in. She just kind of runs around wild and free, and, and engages in all sort of sorts of mischief, some legal, some not. <laughs> and um, it in that it becomes this sort of slice of life film. I said slice of life a lot in my list so far. (laughs) And you can tell this is the kind of film that I really appreciate um, because there's no real narrative to it. It kind of just floats aimlessly along. But I think it's a wonderful um, sort of love letter to life in that regard, despite being about these lower echelons of society who you wouldn't really think about. The dregs, you might say. But The Florida Project is just, it's a wonderful ode to them and um, will make you come to appreciate life more so because of how much life is appreciated through the eyes of this young, poor girl. And I will defend the ending of The Florida Project. I know Yeah, which we, we shouldn't get territory. into because people probably yeah. have not seen it. But uh, I don't love the ending. I, I do love the film. Um, I, uh, I do want to say that, that, you know, we have seen a lot of films that I think portray kind of like this uh, lower class uh, – uh, slum slice of life kind of thing um but usually they're kind of told from the perspective of the adult and i think mm-hmm. the interesting thing here for me at least was seeing these moments play out from the perspective of the children and you know what they see and what they don't see and what they don't understand and what they do understand and what they make of it and that to me was beautiful yeah, it reminds me of um, Room starring Brie Larson and, and Jake, Jacob Tremblay. And that was a movie that I expected to be really hard-hitting and hard to watch. But it was actually almost, I want to say entertaining, but it was a really compelling film because it was told from the point of view of Jacob Tremblay's character who views like this whole room as his world. And it's very magical in that sense. And I think The Florida Project has that sort of childhood wonder and magic to it, despite being about such a hard harsh conditions and harsh life. So if you want to uh, read Y Trend Bowie's full article, you can do so on SlashFilm.com. It's linked in the show notes. Uh, You know, there's obviously more insight than she was able to provide on this audio podcast. And obviously, if you're looking uh, to reference some of the movies she mentioned, which I'm sure people are like, what's that anime? Your name? Uh, You know, you can go to that list and and, then find out. Uh, HT. Where can people find more of your work online? You can find me at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. You can find me at SlashFilm.com, at SlashFilm on uh, Twitter. Uh, you can find this podcast published every weekday uh, on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, if you have a question, comment, concern, please email us, peter at SlashFilm.com. That's peter at SlashFilm.com. Leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends. And we'll see you tomorrow.